0: Good morning, High Point. Actually, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to do the scripture reading today. Advent is an annual season of patient waiting and hopeful expectation. The word Advent means coming, and as we await Christmas Day, we remember the coming of Christ as a baby, and we await the second coming of Christ our King. Each week as we light the candles in the advent wreath, we allow ourselves to reset our minds and our desires. The world invites us into a time of rushing. Advent invites us into a time of waiting. The world invites us into a time of excess. Advent invites us into a time of anticipation. The world invites us into a time of stress. Advent invites us into a time of stillness. Please join me for the following responsive reading as we focus on how Jesus the Savior brings love. The people who walk in the excuse me. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those in a dark land on them the light has shone. Jesus the Savior brings love. To the shepherds in the fields the angel said, "Fear not, for behold I bring you good tidings of great joy." which shall be to all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. The love love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. for For in this way, God showed his love to the world He gave us his Son so that those of us who believe in him might be saved from perishing and given life eternal. Yes, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us because Jesus, the Savior, brings love. Lord, you are the light of the world, and by your grace you have come to dwell among us. You may be seated.
1: You got to light the candles.. That's <laughs> great when they turn your mic on, and everybody can hear me whispering to you. Great job, you guys. That was right. This cue you're supposed to hit. Sick for about five days. You're probably going to hear that in my voice and the disorganization of my sermon. Okay. <clears throat> for the last few weeks, we've been doing a series called "Joy to the World," and we've based it on sort of the, the text of the carol "Joy to the World," which wasn't actually written as a Christmas song. Um, and so, for the last um, four weeks, we've been going through this kind of an order. So. First was, let every heart prepare him room, because if there isn't devotion to Jesus in our hearts, there is no song of joy to the world through us, right? The, the second is, let men their songs employ, which is that we're supposed to be people of the song, like that the, our devotion to Jesus is supposed to come out of us, and it's supposed to come out of us like a song would come out of us, that, it, that there's beauty in the tone and music of it, and that there's content that comes out in its lyrics building conviction in others, Right? The third is let earth receive her king. And we talked about the fact that the, the church actually is the place where human beings have intentionally tried to align themselves to receive Jesus as king in this life right here, right now. While he is not, he's not forced or taken control of all of his kingdom, which is the whole universe and all of the earth. But he actually, we receive his lordship, his kingship in the, in the church, receiving him not just as savior, but as prophet, priest, and king. Right? And then last week we talked about, um, for which he comes to make his blessings flow, that when we receive him as king, his blessings are supposed to flow out of us and touch the world. More than 90% of our lives, we live outside of the, ch- the church and direct religious devotion. We live out among people, and um, his blessings are supposed to flow from us to them, both in the message of the gospel, for them to hear, but, but also in everything that we do. That Everything we do is meant to, out of faithfulness, produce fruitfulness— that in the lives of others should aid in their flourishing, right? So, um, this week is the last one, and it's based on this. He rules the world through truth and grace. Now, if you've been around church, you may have either heard, learned this as the Our Father, or in the Baptistic tradition, maybe the Lord's Prayer, Um, but almost everybody knows the one explicit prayer that Jesus taught people to say. And um, it goes like this in the Gospels. They ask Jesus, how should we pray? And Jesus says, you should pray like this. He doesn't say you should pray this prayer, but he says, this is how you should pray. And this is how it starts. Our Father in heaven, let your name be holy, or hallowed be thy name, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's exactly how every Christian prayer probably ought to start. That God is king and Lord. We want his name to be seen for what it is we want him to be seen and savored and enjoyed in all the world and in us and because we believe that God's ways are right we want his will that the rightness and goodness and the beauty of his truth to reign everywhere right and that's exactly the way it should be in our hearts right but you could imagine if you were listening to this prayer as a as a believing outsider like somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus as the messiah you could see how that is that that you would have some questions based on those lines <coughs> Because those lines are a desire for power, in a way. It sounds that way. It sounds like we're saying, God, what we want is for everything in the society we live in, in the civilization in which we abide, we want it to be exactly the way you want it. And so a a non-believing person could say, well, okay, wait. Exactly how do you want his kingdom to come? And exactly how do you want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Does it mean you want him to give you control? so that you can make us all do what you think he wants us to? Right? And that's that's a really important question. And it's one of the reasons why in that song, "A Joy of the World, it's explicit that he does rule the world, and he rules the world through truth and grace. Right? uh, In this last year— I have gotten rid of about about 85% of my news consumption I've just gotten rid of for various reasons I've mentioned in other sermons and will mention in the future. It's mostly because about 75% of news is gossip, not news, and gossip is sin, and news is helpful, right? Um, And so, but but you don't have to look very far to know that the, the world is full of people who do want power to tell other people what to do. They want to bring in the kingdom that they believe is good, not through grace and truth, but through power and police and computer surveillance and artificial intelligence, right? Like, it, you don't have to look very far to know that, um, that Putin has some desires for how, how rule should come to Ukraine. And, um, and in India, there's an increasing move to a vatu government, which is, which is nationalistics and Hindu first. And I was just there. The, I, I've been to India six times, and I've never seen police show up at a meeting I was at but it happened two out of four meetings I was at this last time, right? Or um, in China, they actually have in certain cities now, they actually, ironically, this is for anybody who like lived in the 90s, they, they actually call their um, intel, artificial intelligence that can look at everybody, they actually call it Skynet, like from the movie Terminator, right? That's got to be a joke, right? But they they're honestly tracking everyone, everywhere, all the time, at every moment, and everything you do affects your societal score. And, and guess what there's a major deduction for? If you're a Christian, if you're friends with Christians, if anybody in your family is a Christian, and these decide things like whether or not you can get loans, and whether or not you can go to the good colleges, and whether or not you can get government jobs, and all of that, Right? Europe can't even decide if they can let Britain do their own thing or not. And it comes right down to us. Like our governor's election just last month was less than 1% difference. Of one half of the state wanting things one way and the other half of the state wanting things another way and the losing half of the state wondering if the winning half of the state is going to be gracious or whether that half of the state is going to try to make everybody else do what they want them to. Or if the other side one, if they would make everybody do what they want to. There's, there's all kinds of people who want power to bring in the kingdoms they desire. And one of Jesus' most famous lines was him explaining that this was supposed to be the greatest contrast between his followers and the world, the city of God and the city of man, right? And in Mark chapter Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is going to Jerusalem and his followers now understand that he's the Messiah. And so the Messiah is going to be the ruling king. The ruling king is going to have a cabinet. And so it's time to fight over who gets to be who in the cabinet. And two of the disciples say, can I be number one and number two? And Jesus turns to them and he says this. He says, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles—the Gentiles is all the non-Jewish nations, okay— that they lord it over them and that their high officials exercise authority over them. It's not supposed to be that way with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave for all. For even the Son of Man, that's him referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That title, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel, and it's when... This divine God figure comes in, and he looks like a son of man. He looks like a human being, but he comes and he rules over everything in the whole world. He is the supreme king, not just over the world, but over all the nations that take the pretense of ruling the world. Babylon and Assyria and Rome and all these great ruling things. The son of man comes and destroys them, and he rules over all things. And he's like, even the son of man— who will destroy the great Babylon's and Assyria's and Rome's and United States and China's of the world, ultimately. And will rule over all people, even I. He said, I did not come now to rule. I came to serve and actually to give my life as a ransom for many people. That part of the most fundamental functionality of bringing rule at this time For Christians, it's meant to be that we bring the rule of God. Make no mistake, the rule of God, His kingdom. And we bring it through grace and truth. Not guns, not power, not skynets. Thank God. Right? And therefore, whatever rule we bring is a rule that must be received. And offered in grace and truth. Now, the second part of, the, of that verse in Joy to the World is, is kind of an interesting one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm not well. Um, he says, he, it says, he rules the world through truth and grace, and then there's this line, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Right? How many times have you sung that verse? Do you realize what it says? Right? What, he, what he's saying is, is he's saying, by means of his rule through grace and truth, and by means of the, na- the way the nations rule in power and authority and lording it over people and trying to force people to do what they want them to do and to try to create a good kingdom in the world by the means of force and power rather than through persuaded virtue through grace and truth, there's an enormous contrast. And God, through that action, is forcing, without force, through the nature of reality, he's forcing the nations to demonstrate over and over and over again that he is right. That what he calls righteous is righteous, and what he has done for people is full of the wonders of love. Because we keep trying to make these utopias, we keep trying to make these great kingdoms, and they don't ever become great. They knock on the door, they have great moments, But even in success we tend to get fat and happy and we tend to think that our success is based on our greatness rather than our goodness and we think that we can slide and we think that we're not like other men and women and then we plummet back into the ash heap of history. And the way the kingdoms of the world function, the way the church is meant to function in it, and the way these two are meant to interact, over time if we do what we are supposed to do, It will display the grace and truth of the rule of God, and in contrast with the city of man, it will produce a proven display of the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And that's what we're doing all the time. That's what Jesus did in his ministry— The ministry of Jesus made the powers of the world look foolish and stupid and arrogant and violent and controlling. And it made Jesus look great. Because of that, we need to realize that the expansion of the rule of God in the world, if there's such a thing, must come through long growth rather than rolling in with tanks. It, it's, a, it's a long-term process. It's, it's, it's always playing the long game. And I, that's, that's really hard in a world where every third website is a new life hack about how like, you can get the life you really want if you just do this one little thing, which is always false. To try to create joy in the world the short way, will always either cost you shallowness or will cost other people their, their life and happiness. The only short ways to more joy are giving yourself more completely to your basest, most glandular desires, which destroy the future you. So they either steal from the future you or they steal from the present other people. Because you have to take it from them in a way that doesn't bless them. Ultimately, only only the gospel functioning in its full grace and truth in the world, in all relationships, slowly grows something that is increasing the benefits of all people so that more people can be more joyful over time, that the pie of joy grows with our need for it, rather than us taking it from each other. Right? Right? So the way Forster says this in the book is he says that the, the joy of God can only go out from us to the world for them through sustained and virtuous expression. Those are two very carefully chosen words. Through sustained expression and through virtuous expression, right? And in the book he says, he says there's basically four mindsets you need to have to play the long game, right? The farmer always plays the long game. He knows that you can get production if you wait for the good things to grow. But if you try to make it, you can't make an eggplant, right? You can't. you You got to wait for it. you got to grow the thing, and you got to wait for it. you got to play the long game. you got to do what's necessary to get there. But you can't make it happen. You can't make it happen faster than it wants to happen, right? So let's look at these four mindsets. And the way you can split these up, you can split them up. It could have been two long points, right? So th- the first two are prudence. That is being wise. And the other two are fortitude. That is being faithful. Right? So the the first one is my, our mindset, which is the first of the mindsets is a sensitivity to the rules of life, or what, what sometimes we call contextualization or discernment. So Forster says this, if the, if the love of God and the rule of God and the truth and grace of God are going to go out into the world, we have to do it in such a way that other people can receive it. Okay? Um, it's easy to say People aren't going to like the truth, and so they're going to mean they're not going to accept what we say. Okay, there's some truth to that. But one of the things you always have to grapple with is that people really liked Jesus. Like the masses of people really liked Jesus. The sinners came and wanted to hear what he had to say, and they didn't get really offended by the fact that he was always discoursing on righteousness. It didn't seem to bother them. It wasn't—it didn't have a self-righteous thing to it. They, they could listen to it, and they still liked him right? And it was always the elites or the highly religious people that got really upset about them. <coughs> even in the book of Acts, even as the Christians were living among people who were not like them, and they were very different, in many situations, they were looked on very highly. Now, in certain situations, usually elites stirred up hatred towards them, and in that bigotry that they created, people attacked the Christians. But in most cases— Nobody had a problem with the Christians until somebody in the economic, religious, or political elite stirred up bigotry. Right? So in Jerusalem, it wasn't until, it wasn't until the religious leaders stirred up bigotry against the Christians that there was a persecution there. Until then, everybody loved them. They met in the temple courts daily. The normal person had no problem. They loved it because they took care of the poor. They didn't take just care of their poor, but everybody's poor. They lived decent, good lives. They were constantly seeking to be more godly. Like, yeah, they thought they were kind of heretical or they didn't believe the right stuff. We, we don't believe like them, but they're good people, right? And it wasn't until the religious leaders stirred up trouble that there was trouble. Same thing in Ephesus. The gospel is growing in Ephesus. People in Ephesus didn't have any problem with the church. They loved people in the church in Ephesus until people stopped buying silver cast idols, when it actually affected the city so much that the amount of superstition about the goddess Diana, which people literally traveled from all over the world to the second wonder of the world, the temple of Diana in Ephesus. And they saw an effect of this in Diana's hometown where we have the largest wonder of the world dedicated to her. People in our own city don't believe in her anymore. And people aren't buying our statues. And it was costing them their bottom line. And they were the biggest metal industry in the city. They stirred up hatred against the Christians. They've said that, you know, they hate the gods and they're attacking our people and they're lying to folks and they stirred up bigotry and hatred. But until then, people in Ephesus love the Christians. Same thing in Antioch, same thing in Corinth, same thing basically everywhere. So don't, don't let our, we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook too quickly that if people don't like us, that it's just because people are bound to not like us because they're wicked. That's not true. Most elites will find us threatening. And that's—they're not going to like that, and oftentimes they'll stir up bigotry against us. That's just the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be. We serve a different king. Anybody who purports to be king is going to find King Jesus threatening, and the only people that can get it is us. Okay? That's normal. Everybody's disliked for various reasons, right? But what we need to realize is that what Forster talks about is that as we live among the people who live around us, we have to think in terms of both the implicit gospel and the explicit gospel. When when are we supposed to behave in line with the kingdom of God and show its beauty to people as we do it? And, and to what extent and which words do we add to it to help them understand where we're coming from? So that the kingdom of God can infuse as well as be declared among the kingdoms of all peoples, right? One of the passages that talks about this is in Colossians 4. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity and let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. (coughs) Um, In another place in the Gospels, Jesus says, don't worry. This is in Luke 12, 11 and 12. When you're brought before the synagogue's rulers and authorities, you see he's assuming there that it's going to be cultural elites that hate us and that we're going to have to answer to, not normal people, not the normal people. He says, Don't worry how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Now there's—the obvious point of that passage, that God will teach you what you should say, is that God will teach you what you should say. That you don't have to worry about—you don't have to worry about If you get dragged somewhere and you're supposed to confess Jesus, you don't have to think now about the words you'll use then. The Holy Spirit will tell you then what you're saying. You just say it, okay? Now here's what that also means, though, is that every situation is different and Jesus couldn't tell us what to say. Right? If every situation is the same, we're supposed to speak the same in every situation. Jesus could have given us three sentences to memorize for every time we're in front of rulers that don't like us. He could have said, "If any time you get drawn in front of any authority, say this. And then we'd just say that, and we would be faithful. But that's not what he says. He says, you'll get dragged in front of rulers and authorities, and they will make you speak to defend who you are in Christ. And when that happens, in your conscience, you will sense— the leading of the Holy Spirit to speak in a certain way, and you just do it. Okay? And it may not be—maybe it's not perfect, but it is—it will be the testimony God wants you to give, and it will be very specific for that moment. Your words through the work of the Spirit in that time, because every situation will be different. It's the same thing Paul's assuming here. He says, listen, when—and he's very focused on proclaiming Christ. Like, he literally says, hey, will you please pray that I'll get out of prison, and I'll have an opportunity to preach the gospel. And when that happens, will you pray that I'll be bold like I should be? Now, that's supposed to teach two things— Please pray. If I say, pray for me so that I'll be bold and courageous. Right? What am I asking you? To pray for me so I'll be bold and courageous. What am I telling you about your faith? That it should be bold and courageous too. Right? But then he says, now listen, in your boldness and courageousness, okay, be wise especially in the way you behave towards outsiders, because people who know you less and get you less are more prone to hear something different than what you're trying to express, and they're more prone to take you differently and misunderstand you. And maybe it's for, for reasons that they want to misunderstand you, and maybe it's for reasons that they just do misunderstand you. And so you have to be wise in the way you relate to people who don't think exactly the way you think, or who don't understand the gospel or the glory of Christ. And he said, therefore, you want to make the most of every opportunity. And he said, so so let your conversations be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt is probably a reference to truth. That there is is something that that doesn't change. There's a preservative in what you're saying. It's seasoned with the salt of the truth. But it's full of grace. Right? Right? So if you're serving a meal to an outsider that you're speaking to, he's like, think about it this way. You've got this big meal. The plate is full of food. And that whole plate of food is grace. There's a lot of it, right? And now to bring out the real taste of what's there, you have to sprinkle salt on it. It's the only way to preserve it and to magnify its real meaning. But if you think of the ratio difference, right? It's a little bit of salt. It's a lot of grace, right? The meal is grace, The seasoning is truth. And so in all of the grace that we give, the taste of truth should be in there. Every bite should have a savor of truth, and yet it should be full of grace. Right? And I think he says that because naturally, especially if God gives us a boldness that we seek in our faith, that boldness will will tend towards truth. Right? Because when you feel bold, you don't go, I'm going to go hug somebody! Right? You're you're stirring yourself up to do the hard right thing. And what's the hard right thing? Well, the hard right thing usually is to be tough somehow. There's like a natural, like, courage should include sword swinging. Like, there should be an active, strong thing. Right? And so we naturally want to just, like, hit somebody with the truth shotgun and, like, tell them how it is and, like, that's courageous. And sometimes it is time to say the thing if that's true. Sometimes it's time to say the thing. But that has to be based in the wisdom and the discernment of knowing how to handle every situation. And one of the ways that we do that is by understanding the culture that we live in, understanding the social rules that everybody's trying to understand and behave by, understanding the assumptions that they already have, understanding how they use language, right? We, we had this debate recently in a staff meeting about whether or not we should use the word multiculturalism in the church. Should we, use, should, you, should we use the word multiculturalism in the church? Right? Well, here's the thing. When you say multiculturalism, depending on who you are, you'll generally have a very different reaction to it. If you are a white male, that word means you're getting moved out. If you're not, if you're a, a, what we call people of color, you, if people say the word multicultural, you probably think, oh, they get it. They get it. Like, we all—like, there's there certain ways we have to behave with each other so we can all be included. Like, they get it. And so th- there's the benefit of saying, if you say that word, there's the benefit for, for everybody who has a positive reaction to that word. Oh, right, multiculturalism. They get it. They get it. A whole other group of people, you say multiculturalism, it means they don't want me included anymore— And it means you're going to go along with a certain political ideology that's in our colleges and it's it's all wrapped up in something, and there's a politics to that, and there's everything that, and we can't debate any of these things anymore, and you're just going to shove it down our throats. So do I use the word? Should I use the word? Should we have it in our documents? Should we put it on our website? What should we do? Right? Right? Some churches say intercultural. Some churches say supracultural. See, it's not easy. It's not easy. Because I want the people who have the positive response to that word to, be, to understand that in this church. I want them to feel like we get it, that we understand that, like, there's more than just whatever the dominant culture naturally is, and that we, we all need to not be on home base all the time and realize that different people hear different things different ways and like different styles and—right? On C- Christmas Eve service, we're going to have sign language and Spanish— translated while I'm preaching. Some of you aren't going to like that. You're like, why can't he just speak American? <laughs> right? And other people are going to be like, this is so great. We're so multicultural. <laughs> and I get both responses. Right? The minute you put a sermon into translation, you preach half as much. It's just a fact of physics. Right? But if you don't, there's a lot of people you can't include. Let's move on. Hope you get the gist of that. Second is develop a wise realism. Um, the word for this is prudence. Um, but people don't like to say prudence because of the word prude, the pejorative, that, that the person who doesn't like to have any fun. The person who's always like, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do this. It's too much frosting. You know, that kind of, pr- that kind of person. And because when somebody says prude, you can't help but think of prunes. And prunes loosen bowels, and nobody wants to think about that. You know what I mean? Right. Hallelujah. So, so you know, let's get rid of a 3,000-year-old helpful category, right? So, but the, the concept of prudence is not merely being wise. It's not, it's not just knowing precepts of wisdom— But prudence is the ability to know exactly what the right thing to do is in every situation. It's the ability to take wisdom, to perceive with discernment what's happening, and knowing how they go together. Knowing in the moment what to do. Okay? That's not easy. That takes a lifetime of getting better at it. Right? It's, it's, and it's, it's it's at the heart of Christianity lived out. Because there are a lot of things that are just plain commandments, and you can just be like, hey, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't, yes, fine. Okay? But most of your life isn't that. Most of your life is choosing your words carefully. Deciding whether to take this minute to work a little bit more on your PTS report or go down on that person's office and so that everybody at the staff meeting right can get a better report or go down and encourage that person that you saw. When you said good morning, the way they said good morning kind of tipped you off that they're not having a good morning. And they could use three minutes of your time and like, do you do this? Do you do that? Do you— time choices, and word choices, and relationship choices, and all of those are these sort of intermittent improvisational choices we make all through the day. And that's the heart of it. Right? Jesus said once—this is another one of his famous lines—I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You see, one of the things that— um, that happens, especially to people who are young, but it happens to all kinds of people, is we start out in life wanting things to be good, wanting things to be better. We feel like the older generation sold out somewhere, and like we're going to be the generation that's like not racist, loves everybody, treats sexuality exactly the way it should be treated, is like perfectly giving and yet prosperous in economics, and like we'll just get it right. It's fine. Because the problem is, is that all the people that came before us were just greedy and stupid, and now we're smart and good, and we'll get this one. We'll get it right this time. This will be the last generation of non-utopia on planet Earth. Right? And of course, that's idiotic. Right? Um, You're likely worse than your parents if they've been ethical because now you live within the like cloistered shell of morality, and it's more likely that you'll be some kind of profligate idiot, but we can go that another time. (laughs) What often happens is we have that kind of that youthful desire for things to be good and and but it's naive. We just, we think it's the right way, but it's, we really don't know how anything works or why anything is the way it is. And so we come up against the world, and it doesn't work. Right? Um, the problem with that is, is that what do you do when that happens? There's this thing you, th- you think, this is right. We're gonna, we're gonna end racism. So here's what we should do. And you have this like cockamamie idea of how that's gonna happen. And it, it's not gonna happen, and it's never gonna work, and it doesn't happen. And you're still only 19. What do you do with the rest of your life? Right? And see, what, nat- what naturally happens is if you believe that you were right, especially if you were very self-righteous about it, which, you know, like, like if you went to university or something, and you, you're like, well, let's do this thing, and then it doesn't work, right? The natural response to that is to say, well, then it can't work. The direction that you wanted to go, it didn't work through the means that you thought was obviously the best and nobody wanted to do it with you, so they're all wicked. Nothing's ever going to happen, and that's why these changes don't take place. Because you didn't know you were the only good person in your generation. You thought it was the whole generation. It was just you. You are the moral one. And now if people aren't going to play ball with you and make them their leader, then what are you supposed to do? And maybe you can't do anything. You're just going to have to wait out this sad experiment in biological humanity, right? And so people tend to get really cynical and they're like, well, you know, nothing's ever going to change. and Nothing's ever going to happen. Nothing's ever going to blah, blah, blah. I mean, even Jesus, one of the funniest things about Jesus is he goes around and he preaches faith everywhere. Look, you've got to believe. You've got to believe in God. You've got you to trust him and repent and believe. And the kingdom of God is near you and you can enter into it. It's for everybody. And then somebody goes, you know what? I totally believe that. And Jesus is like, look at this guy. What? It's like the only time in the New Testament Jesus appears surprised is when somebody actually believes what he's telling them. Do you notice that? They'll come to get healed, but when somebody finds like, I totally believe in you. In fact, I know you're so powerful that you could just say that my servant, miles away, is just healed and he is because, like, I get what you are. And he's like, no way. Right? What I I want you to understand is, is that naivety and cynicism are both forms of immaturity. They're both forms of immaturity. Now, most people will say, yes, Nick, but I'm not not cynical. I'm just skeptical. Cynicism is too much skepticism or unwarranted skepticism. I'm just skeptical. Okay. I wish I could go through all the passages where Jesus talks to somebody who thinks they're just skeptical and argues that they're cynical because there's a lot of them. Most of us who believe we're just skeptical and not cynical should be more skeptical about our skepticism. Right? What Jesus is saying is that maturity produces a, not naivety, but purity. Real purity. Knowing what's true, knowing what's good, giving yourself to that thing trusting in the way of what's good and right and beautiful and truthful, in the way of God, in the character of God, but entirely realistic about the nature of the way the world actually goes, how it functions, and how change actually happens. Right? Forster says this about human society. Even the smallest part of society has a bewildering variety of cultural factors, interlocking and ever-changing nexuses and ganglions. Modern civilization in particular is vast, complex and highly differentiated. And what he says about this is— Hold on, let me go back. What what he says about that is he says, listen, if if things are that complicated, right, and we believe we're not just in something as complicated as a human society, we believe we're in something as complicated as the kingdom of God, which is probably infinitely complicated. So the idea that you and I can decide what should happen and make it happen— And that all of reality will come in consonance with our actions is highly doubtful. And so for Christians, for a couple thousand years at least, have said, okay, the way this works is this. In God's plan that he is working out providentially, he is calling us to act prudentially. It is God's job to act providentially. He's moving the pieces. He's influencing. He's doing all this stuff. He is working. He's the AI. He's working everything into the way he wants it to go. Not us. He's telling us the kind of way we are to act in that plan, which is prudentially. We act with virtue. And then he orders all of the actions of our virtue towards his ends. Towards the kingdom of God, ruling in the world in grace and truth, and showing itself to be fundamentally different than the grasping of authority and power that Is expressed among the nations of the world. Right? He says this about naivety, which I think is important. Prudence is not mainly a virtue of intelligence or savvy, it is a moral virtue. It means you care whether your actions are actually improving the world and blessing others rather than destroying it and burdening them. Naivety isn't quaint, innocent, and morally purifying. It's horribly destructive. Unwarranted naivety is a serious sin. It is lazy and irresponsible, and the result of both sloth and pride. (laughs) Let me give you two quick examples. Some of the ridiculously naive ideas we have about romantic love, and therefore unwarranted sexual freedoms of promiscuity and so on, that is a willful naivety that ruins and destroys the lives of many. You know, so I just picked on the young people, now I'm going pick on the older people. The way almost everyone in America gives to charity is hurting the poor and the needy of the world. Most of the forms of charity sell to us like we're emotional idiots. Okay, I've been to a few of these seminars. They talk about raising money, and they're like, you get a child, preferably a frowning one, who looks not well-nourished, and you sell Americans children. You just sell them children, and they'll give money. And then, you know, you put in your mission statement the other stuff you're going to do, and you kind of work that. But, like, basically, people only give out of emotion. They don't care if what you're doing is working, and they just—they just want you to give. Just make them feel good. There's children hurting. They're going to feel better if you give. Therefore, give money. And you get mailers for this, and people come to you all the time for it. And— Even in evidence-based giving, there's very little tracking of real evidence because it's almost impossible to do. And nobody wants to actually pay for getting the evidence as to whether or not the charity is working. Because nobody wants to pay for that. Who wants to give to that? Hey, if you give me $100,000, I can tell you if this ministry that I'm running is actually working. Right? Guess what the answer to that pitch is? No. There's kids starving. Here's $100,000. And so a lot of the older people who have— retirement incomes and investments, and they're trying to be charitable and give our naivety that we shouldn't be naive about as Christians. We believe that everybody is affected by the fall. Everybody is affected by sin. Everybody—the seven deadly sins are—are stirring themselves up in them. Why would we think if you just give poor people stuff, they'll get better? That's idiotic. Now, poor people will require some help. Some of that will be material in nature. But the idea that you can just give people stuff, in fact, they say, even in in mission world, they say it's five trips. The first trip, they're they're really thankful, and they're beside themselves that you would do this for them, and it's so great. And The second trip, they're thankful. They're not quite as excited. The third trip, they ask where the stuff is. The fourth trip, they expect it. And the fifth trip, the thing you brought them that you spent tens of thousands of dollars is out in the field rusting and broken. They don't even use it. There's worldwide studies on this. And Christians are some of the worst. There's so many different kinds of naivety in us that God can take away and lead us into more functional, fundamentally truthful, realistic ways of affecting the world with truth and grace. Ways that really do help other people. There are ways to help the poor. There are ways to engage in romance that are wise and prudential and good and joyful and not prudish at all. They're just wise and shrewd while being pure. And so we have to become prudential people. I need to go through these ones faster, but I'm intending to. The third is to develop perseverance. And both are kind of about perseverance. You, no farmer can work two days a year really, really, really hard and then none of the other days of the year and have a crop. Right? Um, um, Forster says it this way in the book. He says— Playing the long game, playing the long game of farmer-like spiritual agriculture, if it, doesn't, it, you, it doesn't feel good in the way short-term goods feel good. It just doesn't. But because it is both wholesome and effective, over time it produces more joy, not just for you the person doing it, but joy for those being affected by it. So you're not vampirically stealing or sucking the life out of other people to be joyful. You're actually living in a way that's productive, that's bringing joy for you and for them, right? And and people who have gardens feel this way. Like, they plant stuff, and as, as, as the season progresses, they see it growing, and every step along the way, they just enjoy seeing it change, seeing it grow, knowing what it's going to produce right? Knowing that it's not going to just produce enough for them, but it's going to produce enough to give to their neighbors and their friends at church. And they're going to be able to give people zucchinis, like the 19th one, and be like, bless you in Jesus' name. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, another zucchini. But they'll give it to someone else who will be blessed, right? And that's the way love is supposed to work. And because over time you realize that the long way is both wholesome and effective. That you are both being pure and shrewd. And the more you're convinced that this way of grace and truth is a good and right way, and you can see that it's, it's creating an enrichment for you as well as blessing others and stealing nothing, an increasing amount of stable, pleasurable joy and enjoyment will be with you all the time. Even when you're depressed, you'll be able to take some joy and enjoyment and some of the wholesome and effective and beautiful things that you've been cultivating. Even at your worst moments. And then the last mindset is to give and receive encouragement. Also called edification or friendship. Um, if you, if you haven't—I I did a couple of talks on this recently that are on the podcast. Um, I don't know if I have the numbers in here for you. I think I do, though. Yeah, podcast number 75 and 79 are both about affirmation. Ephesians 4 says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Whenever you're trying to persevere, that's great that you're persevering. But um, human beings are quitters by nature, and we are—our lives are full of discouragements. And therefore, it's not enough for me to say, I'm going to persevere. But I have to enter into the business of helping everybody else persevere in what's good. And, and not just Christians. There'll be non-Christians at work that'll be contemplating some kind of sin or some kind of direction of their life where they're going to seek happiness and joy in a way that is short-sighted and parasitic, rather than sticking with something and doing the hard thing. And almost nobody ever does the hard thing. And it's a big reason for why they don't do the hard thing. is because no one encourages them to everybody's encouragement voice is a a quitter voice. Right? When I counsel couples, I can't tell you how many people, they come in and they're having trouble in their marriage and almost everybody in their life is telling them to pitch their marriage. Sometimes even their parents and siblings. And sometimes their marriage is even that that bad. But they're like, sweetie, you— because there's this knee-church reaction, well, sweetie, you can't be unhappy. Like, life is too short. Right? Let's destroy as many other lives as possible so that you can feel happy for a little while while you destroy your happiness again. And therefore, both in the church, in our small groups, in our personal relationships and friendships, but also just in the people we're around, encouraging them just in the nobility they're contemplating is something good. Like if somebody got in an argument with somebody, like maybe I should apologize, but they were such a bad—insert bad word, right? Instead of being like you're right, they're a insert bad word back. You could say something like, "Look, I know it's when tempers flare. We say stuff that we sort of mean, sort of don't mean. But this person works here with us, man. We should we should have peace. Like, there's probably something you could apologize for, and it would make you a better person. And and then they would probably receive it. and And then if they didn't, then they're a jerk. Then you're right, right? But like. There there are people around you who don't believe in Jesus, who would not submit to the commands of God, who are not even trying to keep in step with the Spirit. But God is working in their lives already. God is working in their conscience already, and he's encouraging them to do something noble, doing something a little bit more noble and a little less ignoble, a little more beautiful, a little less ugly, a little more good, a little less bad, a little more true, a little less false. And the voice of believers in their life should always encourage them in that direction— because, the, because most encouragement in the world is actually discouragement disguised as encouragement. Because the person is basically saying, I'm thinking about quitting. Should I quit? And the other person encourages them to quit. Yeah, you should quit. That's not encouragement. <laughs> it's not encouragement. Encouragement is encouraging somebody to the good, to be their best selves, to be what they deeply would want to be in the moment of disinterested passions. Well they said, when you ask them, you pull them out of the situation. What kind of person do you want to be? Everybody wants to be a good person. Some people have really screwed-up definitions of what that would mean, but everybody sort of wants to be a good person. You pull them out. What kind of person do you want to be? Well, I want to be a loving person. I want to be a person people think cares about them. I want to be the kind of person who people think, like do what I do with pride. Great. How would that apply to that relationship right now? And the answer is do the hard thing. Humble yourself. Get in there. Do the thing that you haven't tried, that you're too afraid to try. Submit yourself once more to the possibility of rejection. Do the thing that requires courage. That's encouragement. And everybody in the world needs that. Like, listen, so much of what I do is trying to encourage people. Right? I've got about two sermons worth of this is what God wants you to do. And then it's all like, you can do it. We can do it. If we believe in Jesus, we can do it. The Lord will help us. The Spirit will help us. The gospel is beautiful. Let's do it. Like my whole, and when your whole calling, a huge part of your calling, is encouragement, you become more sensitive to all the voices of discouragement around everybody. Right? Like, so this is my life. I can't not see this. Everywhere I go, I see artifacts— Of discouragement. In the form of encouraging you to do something ugly, encouraging you to do something not beautiful, encouraging you to do something that's wicked, encouraging—in the form of encouragement, in the language of encouragement, but really discouragement. You knowing you should go the other direction, but you kind of want to quit and therefore go in that direction. And it goes, you can do that. I'm encouraging you. You and I live in a world of human beings who are naturally quitters. And we live in a world that is full of the media of discouragement. Okay? Think about that. And then we wonder, and then we cynically (laughs) sit in our smug little self-righteousness and be like, nobody ever changes. Nobody ever changes. Nobody ever changes. Nobody ever changes. Of course they don't. Everybody's telling them not to and encouraging them not to, and telling them they ought not to, in a hundred different ways. But we cannot be like that. We can be people of encouragement. He says, listen, Paul says, don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth. It's not what your mouth is for. Your mouth, listen, your mouth has divine power. You speak words, and it calls things emotionally. You can't, well, if you have enough faith, you can move mountains, apparently. But you can change metaphysical and spiritual and emotional realities with the words you speak. You can cause people to blossom or attract. You can cause people to be encouraged into nobility or confirm them in ignobility. Your words have incredible power. Especially if they're truly encouraging because that's rare. And so we need to not just be given to faithfulness and, and fortitude in ourselves. We need to realize that we all have to function as officers and encourage everybody up the hill we're trying to climb, and hope that they'll do it back. Because if the joy of God is going to be for the world, if people in the world are going to experience through the flourishing of our fruitfulness, real joy through us, it can't always be explicit. Many times it will have to be implicit, but there are a thousand ways to preach the gospel implicitly and strongly. But we are going to have to be long-game people. We're going to have to be people who understand the context we're in. We read the times. We understand the moment. We understand the social rules around us, and we learn how to preach the gospel implicitly and explicitly in the world we live in. People of prudence, who are not cynical and not naive, but have grown strong in wisdom and know what the right thing to do in each situation is. Increasingly. Never perfect. You're never going to be perfect but you can be increasingly wise in those things, right? And then growing in fortitude and strength and self-control and perseverance so that time after time after time you can keep feeding, because that's how the world really changes. Even when things seem to happen in a moment, that just was the tipping point of a long work towards that thing that you didn't really notice was happening before. And then things rapidly change. They don't rapidly change. Nothing rapidly changes. It seems that way to observers, But people on the inside will tell you how it has been coming for 20 years or 2,000 years. And lastly, in a world of quitters and in a world full of the media of discouragement, we need to be encouragers, first of each other. And then to everybody around us, to speak words that are not unwholesome but are full of building them up towards a good direction. Because any way they get built up towards a good direction, any place where they choose nobility, any place where they choose what's right over what's wrong and do it the hard way, they're moving towards the possibility of responding to the conviction of God. They're choosing not to degrade themselves in sin, but to open themselves up to something that is noble that they could explore, and God will work in that. And if we do that, then the joy of God won't just be for us to receive our king. The joy of God will be something that the world receives through us. And how the Bible speaks about the early Christians, that most of the people liked them. It was only the rulers that hated them and felt threatened by them. People will start to feel like that that about us again. There's no reason that can't be true. Yes, the government hates them. Yes, the bankers hate us. You know, yes, maybe the people who have interests against them don't like them. But normal people like them. And Christians are in everything and everywhere. And even in the government, and even in finance, and even in the arts, and even in academia, and even in all these places, will be Christians living this way and bringing the joy of God, even in places that are resistant. And we will be encouraging those people all the more because of the difficulty of their work. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'd help us to be a people who make room for you in our hearts, who sing your song and employ it in the world, who receive you as our king, who want to see your blessings flow, and that increasingly experience your rule in the world through grace and truth. And we pray that you'd help us see how, through that, you make the nations prove the glories of your righteousness and the wonders of your love. Jesus' name. Amen.